the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Andrea K Show. She's blonde, five foot two, and one hundred two pounds of dynamite in a dress. Here she is, Andrea K. Well, good evening. Good evening, and welcome to the Andrea K Show. I am not Andrea K. Obviously, this is Justin Hart coming to you. I am so glad to take the mic today to fill in for Andrea. It is uh, a tremendous President's Day uh, all up and down the coast here in California. What a beautiful day uh, to have the day off and to commemorate what is uh, an annual fest here in this great United States. And, of course, in tribute to uh, some of the terrible things that are happening around our country, like in East Palestine, President Biden dutifully is on the ground pledging billions of dollars of support to the fine people of Ohio. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. He's not there at all. He's he's tens of thousands of miles away in Ukraine visiting with someone else's president and dutifully pledging more billions of dollars to uh, help that country in its proxy war against Russia. Wow. That, that's not if I were advising the president how I would choose or recommend that he spend President's Day, but to each their own. I, I don't want to be a downer on President Biden. I think um, there are a lot of people who have gotten caught up in the hoopla. Now, I, I know a little bit about what I speak. I happen to speak uh, several Slavic languages. I, I lived a few years over in Poland. I speak Polish, I speak Russian, I speak Serbian. My Ukrainian is a little rusty, I will say. But I know that geopolitical sphere pretty well. And uh, I can just say this, President Zelensky is a very good president for his people. He knows what he wants, he knows how to get it, and apparently he's very good at getting it. Uh, President Biden is also a very good president for President Zelensky's people. And, and it just that's the way everything has sort of come out. It is a far cry uh, for when the the last president we had, you know, well, it wasn't too long ago, was really proud of America. Of course, President Trump uh, made that a central piece of his administration, the entire realm in addition of, you know, we are America first. And I, I like that, and I think it's very good. I wish we could adopt that more prominently across uh, all of our government agencies and all of our elected officials, but uh, – the only thing we can do is try to learn from history. And, and, you know, you've heard the old adage that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But I also think you, you miss out on the, the positive stories. That is, if you don't take the time to learn of the incredible inspiration that has come before us and that has been fed into the American experience, you won't repeat that either. And we need that repeated. There are some fantastic stories and insights we can learn 
from the lives of our presidents. And I, I want to take this time to do exactly that. I want to walk you through a couple of things. We have a, a great guest coming up here in a few minutes as well, which I think you will enjoy. Uh, let me give you a couple stories right out the door. One of my favorite is when uh, President Reagan, he was governor of California. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Imagine that. President Reagan was governor of California for two terms starting in 1967 and during very tumultuous uh, endeavors here across the United States there, of course, at the end of the 1960s into 1970s. And one particular episode stands out for me. There were a host of protests at colleges and uh, Governor uh, Reagan, I think, was was set to speak at uh, one of the local UC schools up and down the coast here in California, there was a very, very strong and rigorous uh, crowd that had gathered of students and activists to oppose his appearance. We see the same thing happening today across the country, but that was the precursor to it. Now, instead of getting rowdy and shouting in his face, they had this tactic down. And it seems like pretty impactful. There were there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people there in protest of this. And they all lined the road on which President Reagan was going to walk, or then Governor Reagan was going to walk into uh, the auditorium. And they said, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to be silent. We're not going to say a word. We're just going to stand on the edge and just give him the silent treatment, right? And that's more impactful and embarrassing than anything else. So comes out of the car. He's walking up the street. It's an eerie sound, right? They think it's shameful, their quietness. Just you can hear a pin drop as it was reported. And then to break the moment, as only President Reagan could, he feigned like he was walking on eggshells, exaggerating his gait as he stepped up the walkway. And then he turned to the crowd, put a finger to his mouth and said, shh, the crowd burst into laughter. They couldn't help themselves. It was a fantastic retort to what was supposed to be a very embarrassing moment. And great presidents have that ability. They have that ability to relate to the American people. Now, you know, the American experiment is very much geared around this, this curious juxtaposition. That is to say that we, we consider that we are not uh, serfs to our crown. Uh, we made sure that we had shed ourselves of that particular rapport when we left the good people of England. <laughs> but, but here we are. Uh, and we give a, a lot of credence to our presidents nonetheless today. And maybe because it's just it's a little bit easier. It's it's more endearing to have a type of leader that you can get to. You, you think back to the 1800s, Alex de Tocqueville, a visiting French uh, academic. I think he was of noble birth, if you will. And he was trying to understand this great American uh, prospect, what was happening there. And so he he would visit people and Americans all up and down, of course, the East Coast at that time, and try to understand what was what was motivating them. And he was so interested. He said one thing he came across is that everyone talks politics all the time. So if, if you ever think that sometimes our political landscape gets a little heated, 
and that it tends to divide Americans. That's probably true, but that's an American tradition in many ways. He said in his book, he says, the, the president of the United States is a man elected by assembly, which is itself elected directly by the people. And for a limited period, he is the head of the agent of the nation, but he does not govern it. He represents the country as a whole and is the pivot of the legislative power, but he does not conduct the affairs of state. Now, things have changed a little bit. I think the president has gained a little bit more power, but it was so foreign to any history that we have had in the world to have this democratically elected president. There's only been a few countries that have attempted that. Poland actually was one of them, uh, but they had this, uh, this, this parliament that would then elect a president, but their problem was they went full bore into pure democracy. <laughs> well, it, it was more like consensus democracy. They had this thing called the liberum veto. And this was, I believe, in the 1700s. And the idea was, we're going to elect people to represent us who will elect a president. And the only way that they can pass legislation is that if everyone agrees. If one person objects, the motion doesn't pass. Well, that didn't quite work out. You need at least some semblance of give and take and majority wins. And that was something de Tocqueville recognized as well. And he went throughout the country talking to these people, and he found amazing stories, some of which I'll recount later on. But let me give you some of the fun quotes that have happened through the years. And these are the presidents laughing about their own job. Uh, President Reagan, of course, was great at self-caricature or self-emulation where he would say, uh, I have left orders to be awakened at any time in case of national emergency even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. <laughs> of, of course, you know, he was always played to that he was uh, perhaps too old for the job. Uh, he made the some very famous jokes on that as well. We may get into that later. Bill Clinton. I may not have been the greatest president, but I've had the most fun eight years. <laughs> we won't go into that too much detail. George W. Bush. I know that a human being and fish can coexist peacefully. <laughs> uh, here's, a, here's one that's a, a little more colorful from Lyndon B. Johnson. Being president is like being a jack in a hailstorm. There's nothing to do but to stand there and take it. <laughs> a famous Texan draw. Now, we also want to note that uh, President, former President Jimmy Carter is probably in his last days right now. Uh, he's just been admitted to hospice, which means he doesn't have much time. And uh, he, uh, he, his esteem in his country has gone up substantially. It's very nice how, uh, you know, he says, this is one of his famous quotes, my esteem in this country has gone up substantially. It is very nice now when people wave at me and they use all of their fingers. I think that's funny. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about this because the president has many, many titles. Uh, here's a story to relate to that. You know, the presidents have their primary plane and their backup plane. They have their primary helicopter and their backup helicopter. And at one point, at one point, President Johnson was he, he was going about to, uh, to to head up to his helicopter. And he chose the backup helicopter by himself. The Marine, who, of course, stands at attention for Marine One, the name of the uh, 
the helicopter that will take the president to his plane or otherwise. He says, uh, Mr. President, uh, your helicopter is over there. <laughs> Johnson quit back, son, they're all my helicopters. And because the, the president has various titles, right? Uh, POTUS, of course, is the one we all recognize him. But he's also known as the commander-in-chief. He's the leader of the free world. He's the chief executive. He's the chief of state. Uh, he's the head of the government. But he's also, uh, Thomas Jefferson made use of uh, his his French roots and said uh, he is also the first citizen. So he is the first citizen. These are all honorifics, right? And, of course, in our in our national fervor for acronyms, we have taken the president of the United States and dubbed it down to POTUS. And then you refer to the presidents by their various numbers, POTUS 45, POTUS 46, etc. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about the presidents today. And there's no one who knows the history of presidents perhaps better than Stephen Stuttered. Stephen, he's a a geopolitical strategist as he gets into his years here. We're going to have him on the other side of the station. He has visited with many, many presidents. I'm going to get him to tell a few stories, if I could. This is Justin Hardin for Andrea Kay. AK, Dynamite and Address, or just Andrea Kay, whatever you call her. Don't call her fake news. It's the Andrea K Show on The Answer San Diego. Now, believe it or not, believe it or not, that uh, that story by Lyndon Johnson was the the safest story I could tell. That was that was the family friendly one. He has some some doozies there. There's some great stories in the background, and uh, I've had my own privilege of. Uh, knowing some some presidents and near presidents over the years, but nothing to the degree that our guest who joins us now, Stephen Stuttered, is a geopolitical strategist. As one, Colin put it, he is a defined international problem solver, and I love that. Stephen, are you with us here? I'm here, Justin. How are you? Oh, Mr. Stutter, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on and talking about uh, your run-ins with uh, these offices and halls of power. You, you've been a, a White House staff and advisor to numerous presidents, I believe, uh, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, and, and even across the aisle, you've had special assignments from President Clinton, and then, of course, you uh, had a hand in, in, in helping out both President George W. Bush and the Trump administrations. Uh, my experience tells me, and I want to start with this, that every person who sort of made it into the the Oval Office, or at least uh, near the nearness of power, that there's some really, really interesting story on how you got there. Can you tell us what was your first run-in with these uh, these realms of power? You know, I got there by a very circuitous route. Gerald Ford, when he became president, was the co-owner of a condo in Vail, Colorado. And I knew the owner of the other half. And he said to me one day, you know, you ought to be in the White House. And I said, yeah, I should. And uh, he made a phone call and uh, the rest is history. Uh, and I was about 25 years old, as I recall. 
That's fantastic. The the run-ins that are so by chance sometimes of politics are so interesting, perhaps only available to those of us who were born under the American flag and uh, understood the, the ramifications of a lay government that is of the people and by the people. Tell us sort of just give us your rundown, the, the thread of your career over the years. Give us a little bit about you. We're going to keep you on for a few segments, if you don't mind, Stephen, because I, I love what you have to say. Tell us about your, your run-ins here. You know, I started at a fairly low level uh, in the White House of uh, President Gerald Ford, who was, interestingly enough, not only he was not elected vice president, but he was not a good president. So he didn't have any natural national consist- constituency so it made his presidency a little bit different, and he was coming off of the pardon that he had issued to Richard Nixon, mm. which which can be argued in a hundred different directions. But at the time, it was the right thing for the country. The country needed to move on and get back to the business of of America. Um, and so it was it was a very wonderful experience to serve Gerald Ford, and then Jimmy Carter defeated him, and then uh, four years later, well, actually three years later, Ronald Reagan invited me to come out to his ranch and have a visit. And I ended up getting on his campaign plane and traveling every mile with him all across the country uh, and in his uh, quest for the presidency. And then went into the White House with him on day one, told my wife that we would only stay 18 months. And uh, at the end of eight years, I was still serving him. And then uh, I promised my wife that would be it. And George Bush was elected and asked me to head up his inaugural, which is maybe the worst job in America. And uh, I told her we'd stay just a short while. And so we served President Bush. And then the time came, to, I simply said, I got to get out of here. It, the place is, it's an exhausting place to work, as, as you know, Justin. And it just wears you out. And well, where do, where do you find yourself now? Are you, I, I hope you, you, you did pull yourself away from the beast, right? <laughs> I did. I was there last a week or so ago. But I try to stay away. We live we live out in, in uh, a wonderful place in rural America, not far from Zion National Park, uh, where we just enjoy the beauties of nature and, and try not to answer the phone. And hopefully they won't take that away from you too, because that that's on the agenda sometimes. But tell tell us with you know what were some of the the interesting insights you had? I know that many biographers have commented that the people behind the gavel or in this case, behind uh, the uh, deciduous desk there, uh, that that they are very different in person, one on one, sometimes than you see across uh, the, the the viewing streams that we have now on TV, uh, over TV or radio. Was that your experience with Ronald Reagan, for example? What what can you tell us about the differential between between the president behind the camera, in front of the camera, and on one on one? Well, you ask about Ronald Reagan specifically. I'll give you a good example. It didn't matter whether you were the Queen of England uh, or, or a waitress in a restaurant. He would treat you the same way. The server, he would give the same respect to that he would to the Queen. We were coming out of an elevator one day in a hotel. And as you know, presidents don't go through the lobby. They tend to ride freight elevators and go out the garbage entrance. And so the president had just exited this elevator right next to a big garbage dumpster, which they do for security reasons. We got about 20 feet outside the elevator, and President Reagan turned around and walked back to the elevator. None of us had any idea where he was headed. We clearly were scheduled to leave the hotel. 
he was going back to thank the elevator operator, and he said, forgive me, I failed to thank you. And uh, that's the kind of guy he was. He was the same in person as he was on the stage. The presidents that I served really were just genuinely legitimate. Um, and, and what the public saw was really the real thing. Now, there have been over the years, and it's come up just recently with uh, new revealed documents around, for example, the assassination of JFK and everything else there that have basically pointed to presidents being part of a very large cabal, uh, a secret agency. And we, we know this from everything from detailed documents released decades later to uh, the milieu of national treasure movies and everything else there that, that point to some secret society, some uh, great conspiracy. Was that your experience? Were there actual sort of forces in and around the president that were moving in di- different directions? Or what, what was your perception in the end as you look back on it? You know, there, there were forces that were moving around, but I, I've been asked this question many times, and I never saw a single indicator of some national or um, international conspiracy or private forces behind the presidency. Having said that, there were persons of influence, and there are with any president. And those persons of influence did have an impact on whatever the president's agenda or position might be on some issues, but not on all issues. And, and I will tell you a, a good example uh, of a, of a steadfast president was Ronald Reagan was headed to give a speech in Berlin. And as is the case in, in foreign speeches that are of substance and significance, the procedure is that the president will invite the speech writers in and he will say to them, these are the kinds of messages I would like to express. The speech writers then would write a speech, a draft, present it to the president. And if it's foreign speech, as the Berlin speech would be, it would be shared amongst the National Security Council staff and certain State Department people who would have inputs and comments. And so the speech came back to Reagan and he read it and it was still very much an early draft form. And he said, I want to put a sentence in here. And the sentence was Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. He wrote it in there in hand. The speech was stapped around again and it came back. State Department mm. strongly objected. This was too provocative. You can't say that, Mr. President. And so it wasn't in the draft. When the president was on Air Force One flying in Berlin, he read the speech again. (laughs) And it wasn't there. And he took his pen and he added that line into the text. And historians are now saying that is the most significant and most famous one sentence of his presidential history. Wow. And of course, in the end, he delivered it just like that. Uh, Stay with us. Stephen, I have Stephen Mark Studdard, advisor to presidents. Our insights continue on the other side of the break. This is Justin Hart in for Andrea Kay. Andrea Kay, telling you like it is, all while eating a donut. The Andrea Kay Show on The Answer San Diego. Eating a donut. Oh, I can only dream. I've, I've been on this fantastic diet to take off my, if you will, COVID-19 pounds. Uh, but uh, hey, the real I, question I've is, take- Justin, does robot Justin eat donuts? 
Oh, you know, robot Justin definitely does eat donuts, and, and he taunts me about it daily. Unfortunately, that's that's a that's a sad, sad situation. I he he tries to keep me on my diet, but also tempt me. The to donut no singularity. Yes, the donut singularity. I'm done for, Noah. I can't believe it. Well, look, you know, one of the things that that will be done though is I will write my story one day, and as a great Czech poet. Václav Havel, who was also president of the Czech Republic after the wall came down, he said, if you want to see your plays performed the way you wrote them, become president, right? In the famous line from the musical Hamilton, it matters who writes your story, right? And uh, our guest today has been on the sidelines and as part of the advisors for incredible stories that have shaped American history. And sometimes you can see that history shift in real time. Uh, Steve Sutter is my my guest today, and we're going to have him here to the top of the hour if he's been so gracious. But I wanted to get your your take, Stephen, on this. What point did you did you look at and said I was just witness to a moment in history where the president used that status as the leader of the free world or otherwise one of the honorifics to change history? Can you? relate something that from from your uh, history itself as you were witness to something special there? You know, I can think of several, Justin, but one that one that really sticks out to me was something we just talked about a minute ago when President Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. And I was there about 10 days ago and stood at that gate and thought about that moment when Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was the beginning of the transformation uh, of really the entire world order. When Reagan was elected president, he asked Congress to declare diplomatic relations with the Vatican State, which surprisingly the United States had never had. And the press recorded that as he did it so that he could pay back the blue-collar Democrat workers that were Catholic who voted for him. Well, that wasn't the case at all. He knew that we had a British prime minister who was ready to join hands with him and a Polish pope, Pope John Paul II, who was equally ready. And the three of them conspired to bring down the communist Soviet bloc, and they did. And the world changed. It was amazing. I was actually a a small witness for that. I was a missionary for my church over in Poland in 1990. The week I got there was the week that Lech Walesa was elected president. So I literally caught the, the last 90 days of the communist regime there in Poland, and they spoke very highly of Karol Wojtyla, from from Krakow, the the Pope John Paul II, and I, I believe President Reagan kind of worked hand in hand both with him and with uh, British Prime Minister uh, Thatcher, of course, and the three of them really created this incredible firestorm to change history. Isn't that right? They did, and they did it very purposely. They had a very clear agenda. They wanted to bring it down. They wanted freedom preached in Europe. I had the privilege to accompany President Bush Senior to Gdansk, Poland. And we arrived there, and there were about a million people. And that, that's, that was uh, Lech Walesa's hometown. That was where the Solidarity, Solidarity Movement began, which was the beginning of all of this action for freedom in Eastern Europe. And as we drove into, and we drove into the city of Gdansk in the motorcade, they were throwing things at the president's limo. And that's not unusual. They'll throw bricks and you know rocks and things like that. This crowd was throwing flowers, which you know from your time in Poland, was a great expression of their love and their adoration for President Bush. 
I noticed in the crowd that there were lots and lots of American flags, which at the time, it was still a communist country, those flags were illegal. And as I looked at those flags, I saw that they were, they didn't have the right numbers of stars or the right numbers of bars, and the blues were wrong and the reds were wrong. They were, for the most part, homemade American flags. And some of them were old American flags that those poles had hidden away for many, many years, many of them less than 48 stars, as a reminder of what they dreamed for. They dreamt for freedom that the Americans have and that we take for granted. And those polls came out to express their love in that city where the freedom movement began. And, of course, back home, he, President Reagan would get none of that praise. In fact, the, the press were more than willing to give uh, President Gorbachev uh, the, the nod for bringing down uh, the wall, if you will. They, they, they chalked it up to perestroika, right? And as he made his very famous uh, limousine ride up Pennsylvania Avenue to give his address to the joint members of Congress, a very, very rare event, uh, and uh, he got out of his limo, I think it was retold, and he went to shake the, the hands of the people, and the press were so, so elated with this moment. President Reagan at that very moment was taking lunch with several conservative press people. Do you remember the rest of the story? I think I want to tell it right. I, I, I do, and it's a, it's a wonderful story. But let's jump to the end of the story. When, yes. Reagan, when Reagan died and his body was lying in state in the rotunda of the United States Capitol, Mikhail Gorbachev, <clears throat> excuse me, who had been the leader of the Soviet Union, its last general secretary and president, came to the United States. That was a very significant step. He came to pay his respects to his colleague and friend, Ronald Reagan. That is very significant in world history. He walked into the rotunda of the United States Capitol building. The, the, the uh, authorities stopped the lines of people passing so that Gorbachev could do it alone. He walked into that large rotunda. It was silent. As he walked up to the president's coffin laying there, he stopped. He bowed his head in what we believe was prayer. And then he stepped forward, and in the most extraordinary moment, took his hand and reached out and put his hand on the American flag that draped his friend's casket. That told the entire story right in that moment of the relationship of these two men who worked together to change the world. Of course, the comical aside from that moment was when George Will, at this lunch, witnessing in real time President Gorbachev out of his limo, shaking hands with the people and the commentators on the news, giving him all the praise for turning down the wall. Uh, he turned to President Reagan and said, aren't you upset that he's getting all the credit? And President's reaction, of course, was one of his great lines he would use frequently. He said, what do I care? I co-starred with Errol Flynn. <laughs> it was it was that kind of self-deprecation that really did make the man. He didn't care who got credit for it, but he knew what he wanted in the end, and he made it happen. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's a very fair assessment. He had a very clear understanding of what his goals for the country were, not for himself, but for the country. And one of the things that was particularly noteworthy about his presidency is everybody in his administration understood clearly the point that he was steering to on the horizon, and he expected everyone on his team to steer, steer toward that same point. Reagan had a sign on, the, on his desk in the, in the Oval Office that said, 
It doesn't matter who gets the credit. And the sign faced towards the president. And every time the Secretary of State, Al Haig, would walk into the Oval Office, Haig would walk over and turn the sign around so that those in the Oval Office could see it. And when he would leave, the president would turn it back around so that it faced toward where the president was sitting. The last day that Al Haig came in there as Secretary of State, he came in, he turned that little saying around. Reagan fired him, and Reagan never turned the sign back. <laughs> That's something special. And you really did have that, that taste for minutia. As I recall, there was a story of a woman who was down on her luck, recalled, retold her story to President Reagan. President privately wrote her a check. And the president kept his own ledger in his checkbook, noticed weeks later that she hadn't cashed the check, called her to ask out what happened. She said, I was so moved I had to frame your check. He said, fine, keep that check framed. I'm sending you another. Uh, We have just a a minute left, but I want to hold you over for another session. Are you available, Stephen? I'm good, Justin. Oh, fantastic. Well, but did your kids ever meet some of these presidents? Yes, all of our we have six children. All of them had occasion to meet the presidents of Iceland. I want to talk to you next about some of the relationships of the president with the children of the United States. Back with me, stay with me, folks. On the other side, we have more to talk about our presidents. This is Justin Hart in for Andrea K. Andrea Kay, bringing the world a much-needed reality check. You're listening to The Andrea Kay Show on The Answer San Diego. The birthdays of Washington and Lincoln commemorated today. Of course, we commemorate all of our fine first citizens, as Thomas Jefferson would call himself. But uh, one of the things I love is to see the interactions of our presidents and many elected officials with uh, the youngins of our great citizenry here, the the youth, and uh, not just kissing babies, as is the cliche, but some, some real precious moments. And sometimes you can recount that with your own kids. I'll, in the next hour, I'll share some of the encounters my kids have had and I had as a kid. But uh, my guest right now, Stephen Stoddard, has been close to many, numerous presidents over the last 50-plus years. Uh, Stephen, your kids, you have six of them, or your grandkids, or otherwise, I know from my own experience that it's one of the great treasures to bring those kids to the White House, even after your official duties have ended, or have them introduced at some event to these presidents. Can you share with us some of the interactions that you witnessed either with your own kids or other kids, uh, the presidents that you served? You know, our our children had wonderful experiences. They were invited to things like Easter and Christmas in the White House. And it was interesting, the presidents that I served took time to meet the children. They were very kind, very sensitive. You have to remember the White House is physically a small place. It's the center of national security. It's a very busy working place. And so it's really not a place where children are very often present. But the presidents that I served wanted to engage with the children of America. Take Reagan, for example. He was very focused on education, but he made it very clear 
that the education focus for him was not about education professionals or education bureaucrats. It was about the children, those to whom the future of the republic would be entrusted. And he felt an obligation that we give them the best that we could give in the finest country in the world. George Bush Sr., uh, it was the 200th anniversary of the American presidency, and he, he asked that we do an event. It was called George to George. And it was all for children. And he brought in as his guest to the inaugural, he brought in, brought in two groups of people. One was all of the Medal of Honor recipients. The other group that he brought in was five classroom teachers, be they public, private, or parochial, from all 50 states and five territories. And he met with them. And I remember he said that of all that I do, what you do is just as important because you teach the children of this country. And of course, the presidents I knew were very always willing to take time to have their photo taken uh, with a child. When you may remember that on a Sunday morning, 241 Marines were killed in a terrorist attack Mm. in Beirut, Lebanon. And the president went down to Camp Lejeune to memorialize these Marines. While he was there, a a father of a Marine who we knew had been killed approached us and he had a his son, whose father was buried in that debris, a 12-year-old boy had written a poem for the president. And we made the president aware of that. And the president made us change the schedule so that he could meet personally with that 12-year-old boy. Presidents I served had great respect and an admiration and hope for the children of America. Were there other times that you witnessed where these leaders are... are uh executive executor of the the executive branch where they they had such a burden that it, it looked like it was uh, the the lowest point were you ever witness to one of those moments the lowest point in the presidency i can think of several but one i think of is the day that uh, anwar sadat was assassinated and the word came into the president that Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, had just been assassinated. And I saw the president, I saw grief just fill his face. And he said, would you please all excuse me? I would like to go be alone alone, and pray for my friend. Um, we think of them as, as leaders, but they're also human beings. Um, I, whenever an American soldier would be killed in combat, the presence I served would reach out to their widows or to their mothers and express condolences and thank them. They were very personal, very tender, and they, the presidents that I served, those moments weighed very heavily on them. Whenever they would have to commit soldiers to combat, I would see them leave the office, and they would go to the residence to ponder the significance of what they were doing and the families they were affecting. They, they really internalized those very painful decisions. Now, uh, Stephen, some scholars, and I can understand this, and I agree with part of it, have noted that the role of the president has probably ballooned a little bit. The power accrued there within the executive branch, especially as I witnessed and have written extensively around the COVID-19 pandemic and the extringencies that were imposed there. What's your opinion right now on the presidency? Perhaps it's just the the human nature that we all sort of gravitate towards the simplistic we need and uh, you know some dictator. Uh, but what would you attribute you know that sort of uh, amplification perhaps beyond its bounds? And 
what can we do to sort of restore the presidency, both in character and perhaps role? Or what are your thoughts there? You know, President Trump spoke a lot about the deep state. There is a deep state. There are roughly two million civilian bureaucrats that work for the United States government. Um, The amount of regulations that are issued by the federal government on a daily basis is astounding. And the enormity and the sweep and breadth and the the uh, control that comes with those organis- those uh, ordinances and regulations is beyond, I think, anything the Founding Fathers ever envisioned. The executive branch power hasn't just ballooned, it's exponentially ballooned. And only when we get control of the executive branch in this country and begin to get the government back where the founders intended it to be, will we have the kind of freedom that the founders intended. Presently, the executive branch, in my view, is of the three branches, the one that is out of control. How are we going to, the, the, the challenge though, is that these branches of government were, were set up by our founders to, you know, not negate each other. It's difficult for one to get the upper hand on another it is to restore that sort of original intent. And I think the morality and the anchorship of the presidency, it seems like we actually need, someone who's going to dutifully unchain themselves from all of that power. Is that even, is that even possible? You know, I've actually given a speech recently and I'm not sure that it is. And and the reason that I'm not sure anymore, if you look at the way that Congress is working, it's really dysfunctional in many respects. It's non-functional. We have a Republican house. We have a Democrat Senate. There's no way they're going to pass any legislation that will minimize or constrain the bureaucracy. If for some wild reason they could pass legislation that would pass both houses, President Biden would would veto it. Um, The public employees unions are almost 100 percent supportive of a Democrat president. He's not going to vote anything that would be to their detriment. They're his supporters. And so I really, I haven't seen a way, the only way that we're going to turn that around, in my view, is to have a Republican president or a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Maybe then we can legislatively Mm. curtail and and constrain the federal bureaucracy. But right now, it's totally unconstrained and unretained. Well, maybe one of those kids... One of those inspirations that we uh, that we saw from the presidents uh, would bring these kids into uh, the next round. Maybe they'll take the reins from them. Stephen, thank you so much. We're going to have you back on for sure because this was so thrilling and insightful. Folks, Stephen Stuttered, we got time on our hands. Uh, in the next hour, we're going to talk a little bit more. But Stephen, thank you for being our guest. We will grab you on another session. My pleasure. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.